I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, big business is weighing in on polarizing issues and shaping laws like never before. Companies are sort of being forced to respond, often on social media, to the hot button issue of the day, and they're sort of you know feeling a lot like our politicians do in Washington now, the same way they deal with it. Then, what's it like to be a scientist who creates weapons of war? They understood what a revolutionary, horrifying, devastating weapon they had unleashed and how the world would never be the same. Plus, what could really change how our politicians talk about fossil fuels? I believe if uh, Washington, D.C. was, uh, you know, covered in, in, you know, some horrible smog condition that was directly related to fossil fuels, uh, we may have a different decision process sometimes. That's all just ahead on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In 2016, the Walt Disney Company made a threat. They threatened to stop filming movies in the state of Georgia, along with their subsidiary Marvel, which is home to the likes of Guardians of the Galaxy, Black Panther, and Spider-Man. Oh no. My friends are up there! What? Uh, don't worry ma'am, everything's gonna be okay. Excuse me, excuse me! Oh my god, that's tall! Some argued, though, that the bigger threat to Georgia was actually from a TV show, which also filmed in the state. It's a hit on the network AMC. It's called The Walking Dead. What are you doing? Come on! Just like Disney, AMC opposed a so-called religious liberty bill, which had cleared the Georgia House and the Senate. The bill said that religious leaders did not have to perform wedding ceremonies they didn't agree with and that faith-based organizations could refuse to serve people if they felt like it would violate their beliefs to do so. It was reported that the NFL might not want the Super Bowl in Georgia if the governor signed the bill, and the NCAA might not want to hold championship games in the state. So the governor, a Republican, was trapped between religious interests and companies with a lot of economic leverage. In the end, he vetoed the bill. It was a sign of the times, a time in which the power of business to shape politics is like nothing we've ever seen. Erin Chatterjee is an associate professor at Duke University's Business and Public Policy Schools, and he's studied the increasing entanglement of politics and business. I talked with him a few months ago about what he sees happening. He says companies used to adhere to something called the Michael Jordan dictum. Well, I think the conventional wisdom was uh, for a long time, why would you want to alienate you know, 50% of the country right. by taking on a really controversial issue? And we're not really sure whether Michael Jordan said that or not, but the notion uh, when he was asked to get involved in the political campaign and sort of uh, demurred mm-hmm. was the idea, well, why would you want to be controversial and turn off people who could, who could buy sneakers? Mm-hmm. And so I think that the you know, neutrality, on especially controversial social issues and politics, that sort of carried the day. But companies, Kara, have always been involved on trade, on immigration, on mm-hmm. tax policy, things that directly affect the bottom line. Right, I think right. what's new is this set of issues like the ones you talked about in Georgia and here in North Carolina. Right. And and with the issue of trade, it, like you said, it's really purely about money. But now it's things that like, why would Disney care about a religious liberty bill? Does that affect how well their movies sell? Maybe or maybe not, but it seems like it's kind of going outside what is directly involved with marketing that movie. 
That's right. The aperture is starting to open, and the scope uh, of business and their role in society is starting to widen. And because of that, you see businesses getting involved in religious freedom bills, down to the details about transgender bathroom access, which right, was, right. happened in HB2, religious freedom in Indiana. And I agree with you that the scope of business involvement in politics has increased uh, in a big way recently, particularly with CEOs speaking out on these issues. Um, going back to North Carolina, where you're sitting right now, uh, remind mm-hmm. us what HB2 is. Sure. House Bill 2 in North Carolina. You know, House Bill 2 uh, contained a lot of different provisions. The one that actually drew most of the attention was around transgender bathroom access. And as people might recall, the city of Charlotte in North Carolina had passed an ordinance related to this, and the legislature uh, passed a law shortly thereafter, signed by then-Governor Pat McCrory. Well, HB 2 and, and transgender bathroom access became a giant issue. I would travel around the country, and people right. would, when I told people I was from North right. Carolina, they'd ask me what I thought about <laughs> HB 2. That became uh, the identifying feature Yeah. We're, we're used to basketball, but now right, people right. ask us about HB2. Right. Uh, HB2 was later uh, revised. Uh, many people on both sides still frustrated with the current state of play. But that was an inflection point in this debate. And the NBA, the NCAA, uh, PayPal, Deutsche Bank, several other kinds of organizations heavily involved in lobbying the state against HB2. Is there a time in history, is there something you can pinpoint where you can say, like, whoa, that was an inflection point where somebody stood up and what we considered normal in terms of taking a political stand changed. Well, I've tried to look at it in a historical perspective. And if you look at the turn of the 20th century, you had folks like J.P. Morgan getting mm-hmm. very involved in the U.S. economy, you know, bailing out the U.S. economy, mm-hmm. some people say. During the civil rights movement, companies like Coca-Cola in the 1960s were, were heavily involved. Uh, equally so in the, um, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa in the mm-hmm. 1980s. But this recent wave of CEO activism, by my calculation, it really began with Tim Cook's statements uh, around Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. At least that's when it really came on the map for me. As you recall, that was a law in 2015 that was signed by then-Governor Mike Pence. As you know, that name might sound familiar. He's now the vice president. But uh, Tim Cook was one of the first business leaders to really speak out against that. And one week later, the law was revised. Also, you know, a year earlier, he had been on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week as, you know, coming out as gay. And that was a big Mm -hmm. uh, sort of moment as well. So while he's reserved and quiet, perhaps, in his demeanor, he's taken some pretty big steps as the CEO of Apple. So what do you feel like, you know, you talked about this move on Apple's part, but we've seen Patagonia speaking out uh, and actually suing the Trump administration on behalf of uh, federal lands, you know, trying to preserve uh, federal lands, and not make them privatized. We've seen the CEO of Chick-fil-A speak out and say, I don't believe in gay marriage. We've seen the CEO of Hobby Lobby say, I don't want to, you know, support the morning after pill for my employees. You could go on and on. How has this just kind of blown up and become something that so many CEOs now are willing to take a stand on at the risk of alienating huge swaths of people who are their customers? You know, Kara, I think it's something that we're, we're trying to understand right now because it's happening very quickly. But my best guess is the following. One is that at least for LGBTQ-related issues, a lot of businesses had settled these issues inside the corporate halls in the 1990s and early 2000s. You know, a lot of these companies had subscribed to non-discrimination policies long before they were debated uh, in states like North Carolina, Indiana, Texas, and, in, and around the country. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is I think companies felt a little more comfortable speaking out because it was sort of 
settled law inside a lot of companies. And that's an interesting divide you'll see, you know, particularly as it relates to diversity. There's a lot more consensus inside corporate America, at least on the books, than there might be outside corporate America, as you see in these state legislatures. So I think mm-hmm. that was the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing, which is a little more subtle, is, you know, we've documented this political polarization that's really gripping the United States of America, right. where Republicans and Democrats are deeply divided, conservatives and liberals are deeply divided, and we're seeing much more ideological sorting, where we all kind of retreating to our own camps and our own echo chambers. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of world, Kara, everything becomes political. And so companies are sort of being forced to respond, often on social media, to the hot button issue of the day. And they're sort of you know, feeling a lot like our politicians do in Washington mm-hmm. now, the same way they deal with it. So that's where I see a lot of the CEO activism coming from, too, just the progression of this politicization uh, of American life. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Aaron Chatterjee, an associate professor at Duke, about how and why some CEOs and companies are starting to take part in social activism. So talk to me a little bit about the bottom line for these companies. Have you seen companies where they took a stand on whatever issue and sales went up? Like clearly people are like, I like that stand and I'm going to eat your sandwiches or drink your coffee (laughs) or buy your sweatshirts or whatever. Well, it is the million-dollar question, and and it's very difficult to to attribute an increase in sales to a particular stance. Mm -hmm. The two things we have on this, uh, my own study with Professor Mike Toffel at the Harvard Business School does find that when Tim Cook spoke out about religious freedom in Indiana, people's intent to buy Apple products, not their actual purchasing, but their intent, did increase. And it seemed to be associated with the idea that uh, Tim Cook had spoken out on an issue they cared about. Mm -hmm. But to tell you the truth, we still don't have uh, any systematic evidence that speaking out will always lead to an increase in sales. It probably depends on the context, the issue, Mm -hmm. and the CEO herself in terms of what's going on. And certainly I know like uh, Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, I think it was about five years ago, uh, was very pro-gay marriage um, and spoke out against an investor who said, you know, "I, I don't think you should be taking a stand on this issue. And it may not have done anything great for Starbucks, but Starbucks uh, is doing very well as a company. Like, it didn't seem to have hurt. It doesn't seem to have hurt Starbucks. It doesn't seem to have hurt uh, other companies that have taken stands. I mean, Apple, look at them. Right, uh, right. You know, it does not, doesn't seem to have hurt it's them hurt, at all. Yeah, yeah. And Kara, I'll tell you another thing. Uh, you know, I'm currently teaching a class on um, on these topics, including a case on CEO activism. And I find my students, who are mostly millennials, they predominantly, not all, seem to be very open to CEOs taking these stands. And mm-hmm. they think that millennial purchasing behavior might be different than the older generations. Mm-hmm. The idea that some of these things that CEOs are talking about might really resonate with millennial customers and even more importantly, as potential employees of these companies. And so it could be that this new generation is going to introduce a new dynamic into the costs and benefits of CEO activism. So often it seems like these stances are taken very quickly, right? They're responding to events in the news. It could be uh, the travel restrictions uh, from President Trump, or it could be the pullout from the Paris Climate Accords. And I wouldn't think that there would be a lot of sort of internal or external polling and people thinking like, okay, if we take this stand, are people going to buy our yogurt? I mean, it just does not sound like (laughs) that's what they're doing. Not to my knowledge, Kara, you know, there could be uh, super secret efforts inside these companies to do that. What I would say is I would bet on that being the way of the future, because as companies seek to collect a lot of data on us and we seem to be willing to give it to them, I imagine that our political uh, interests and particularly how salient politics is to us, how much it matters to us, is going to matter a lot to them. You know, if you think about what makes you want to buy a car uh, or any kind of product, it's your identity, how it makes you feel. And if Mm -hmm. politics is a big part of how we feel, when the politics is going to 
be a big topic of interest for the data gurus at these large branded companies. And so I see that happening more and more. And maybe a year from now, we'll be having a very different conversation. It's interesting, though, that you say they are not now doing a lot of polling because even though CEOs have not been, obviously, elected by voters, they seem to have tremendous political power, at least in certain cases. And I wonder if you think like CEOs are able to change policy and because I feel like we are seeing it happen in real time. Well, Kara, I think the answer is yes, they're able to influence policy. You know, they've always been able to through lobbying and campaign contributions, but now they have this additional mechanism, which is, you know, to speak out on these laws publicly to massive social media audiences and also use economic leverage, as you mentioned with Disney and AMC and, of course, PayPal and Deutsche Bank here in North Carolina, Apple and Angie's List in Indiana. We've seen Mm -hmm. it time and time again. I will say two things. One is uh, for folks particularly who feel like their voices aren't being heard, this kind of... um, display of CEO power is exhilarating. They feel like someone's standing up for them where the democratically elected representatives are are going in a different direction. But others, uh, and regardless of political persuasion, but many others, I think, also feel queasy about it for the reasons you talked about. No one's elected these CEOs to to get involved on social issues. And so, at least for my students and people I've talked about with this topic in depth, I mean, there's this interest in, well, you know, are we giving corporations too much power by encouraging CEO activism? And I think that's a legitimate topic uh, of discussion as well. Um, Do you worry that we kind of risk further polarizing the country if we become a place where there's already lots of differences, obviously, between Republicans and Democrats in states that vote in different ways. But, you know, if Democrats are like, well, I'm not going there and I'm not doing this and Republicans feel the same way. And so you get, you know, Democrats drinking their coffee at Starbucks and wearing Patagonia and Republicans are eating at Chick-fil-A and shopping for crafts at Hobby Lobby. And like, even the things that could bind us together, like the experience of the everyday where we shop, even that is different. And nobody even goes to the same stores as anybody else. Yeah, Kara, you've hit on something really important that's already happening. We're already sorting by the neighborhoods we live in, the types of schools we attend, mm-hmm. the types of products we buy. You know, there's a recent paper uh, in a sociology journal called Why Liberals Drink Lattes. And it's a really great, <laughs> it's, a, and it's a really great article because what it, it points out is drinking a latte or wearing camouflage, these things aren't traditionally or anywhere tied mm-hmm. to being a liberal or conservative. They have nothing to do with political ideology. But we're all adopting these markers of our political affiliations to kind of fit in more with the group that we identify with. And that's what our social media feeds are being dictated by, uh, our neighborhood conversations and coffee chats. And so you're right, as we see these inflection points where companies are going head to head with state legislatures, and in, in the cases we've talked about, it's primarily companies espousing the progressive side of the spectrum in terms of the, the issue and mm-hmm. conservative legislatures that are led by Republicans, you could potentially see more division. On the other hand, with folks that I've raised this with, particularly on the progressive side, they've said, well, look, the, these are fundamental human rights, and these companies are committed to diversity, and mm-hmm. they ought to be fighting with these, these things whether they do business, whether they whatever they can have leverage. And so mm-hmm. I see, it, again, depending on your political lens, it really depends on how you look at CEO activism, which I found to be very interesting. Aaron Chatterjee is an associate professor at Duke. He has studied the increasing collision between politics and business. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. On our website, we'll have a few other stories of business getting tangled up in politics, like the saga of Ivanka Trump and Nordstrom. And we'll link to our own discussion about the curious tale of Charles and David Koch, owners of Koch Industries, who are some of the most politically active business owners out there. 
That's all at innovationhub.org. Quite a while back, James Conant was walking down the street in Washington, D.C. He was on his way to volunteer for the Army. As he headed to the enlistment office, he ran into this guy that he knew. Both of the men were chemists, and when Conant told his colleague where he was going, the colleague, James Norris, was appalled. Norris told him, you could do more for your country by staying here in the U.S. Conant, of course, wanted to be in the action, which is why the idea of joining the Army had appeal. But Norris had a different kind of action in mind. It was 1917, First World War, and Germany, which had some of the best chemists in the world, had already unveiled a series of horrific weapons, worse than anything that anyone had ever seen, like chlorine gas and mustard gas. Norris wanted Conant to fight back, but with chemistry. For Conant, this was the first of two wars in which he would be consumed with and worried by the science of killing. He would also go on to help run the Manhattan Project, the quest for an atomic bomb during World War II. The project famously prompted physicist Robert Oppenheimer to cite this line from Hindu scripture, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. When they saw that enormous fireball go up into the sky and they realized that they had achieved the impossible, that they had built this terrifying new weapon, they understood, really the physicists understood right then, what a revolutionary, horrifying, devastating weapon they had unleashed and how the world would never be the same. That's Jeanette Conant, the author of Robert Oppenheimer and the Secret City of Los Alamos. Yes, they were relieved that 27 months of unmitigating around-the-clock labor had yielded this weapon, and, and then there was nothing but fear and dread of what this meant for the world. Conan has written extensively about crafting some of the deadliest weapons the world has ever seen and what it's meant to the people who made them or pushed for them, people like Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein and her grandfather, James Conant, who she writes about in her most recent book, Man of the Hour. In fact, when Jeanette was growing up, what her grandfather had unleashed seemed ubiquitous and incredibly scary. I mean, I grew up in Cambridge during the Vietnam War, so war wasn't some distant theoretical thing. You know, there were protests in the streets, all the windows in Harvard Square were smashed in and covered with plywood. You know, it was the burning issue of the day, and we would see images of Vietnamese villages being torched. And my father, who was very liberal and the angry son of a great man, would say things like, well, that's napalm, which your grandfather and the Harvard scientists invented, and he's a mass murderer. Hmm. So I saw that side of it, where people um, by the 60s saw weapons of mass destruction as means of mass murder. On the other hand, I you know, sat with my grandfather and his colleagues who felt that they had built this weapon to end a war that had gone on for years and years. Right. World War II claimed 50 million lives, mm-hmm. and they felt that it was um, necessary to sacrifice 
two cities, 140,000 people, to bring the war to a quick and decisive end, that it was the lesser of two evils. Um, it wasn't an easy decision. It wasn't a decision that anyone took lightly. But they felt at the time that it was absolutely the thing that they had to do to finally bring this horrible war to an end. So I saw both sides of the issue. And the tension um, is something that is so present that it continues to be yeah. a subject of fierce debate today. And by the way, did your grandfather ever hear the kind of things that your father said about napalm and like... Oh, yeah. every Thanksgiving and Christmas, yes, it was the major battle of the dinner table. Wow. That's not your typical Thanksgiving or Christmas uh, No, it discussion. was an open wound, yes. Yes. open wound in my family, um, but it was, you know, in some sense uh, for the country. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to your grandfather. I talked about the story of him, like, walking down the street. He's going to the enlistment office. Was he hesitant at first? Because he did end up, you know, I, I talked about him running into this friend of his who was a chemist, and he did work on these poison gases. Was he hesitant at first to do that? How did he feel about that? Very much so. You know, he was um, an academic chemist. He thought of himself as becoming a professor and working safely in some little squirrely laboratory somewhere. Um, he was raised by a Quaker mother, and in fact had been bitterly opposed to World War I, even when all of his friends um, joined, you know, the great patriotic zeal, uh, ran off to uh, help the Allies and joined ambulance corps and uh, uh, volunteered. He was bitterly opposed to mm. World War I. He didn't mm. see the point of World War I and didn't want to be involved. And selfishly, he didn't win want to interrupt his academic uh, career. But when uh, we finally joined in 1917, he had no choice. Everybody was enlisting. And he was on his way to his enlist when he got sort of uh, recruited into the Chemical Warfare Service. Uh, he hated it. Um, he, and in letters home, he described it as trying to beat the devil at his own game, you know, making these terrible, toxic, asphyxiating gases. But people need to remember that in wartime, it's a race for survival, and uh, sort of troubling moral issues get pushed aside when men are being slaughtered in huge numbers. His friends were dying at the front, and he was told that if he helped develop these gases, they could retaliate, they could push the Germans back, and American boys were just arriving in France and being gassed to death, and so hmm. it was a very pressing, urgent matter that we uh, try and develop chemical weapons that we could use to retaliate against the Germans. Yeah, and, and talk a little bit about how good the Germans were in terms of chemistry and in terms of developing these gases. Because when you read the descriptions of the gases being unleashed and like literally thousands of French people dying at a time uh, from gas, I mean, not they were not being shot, right? That's not what was happening. These were incredibly effective. It was a devious and diabolical weapon gas. World War I, if you remember, was trench warfare. So right. it had been this bloody war of attrition that had ground on for years and years. So the Germans developed gas, and the whole point of poison gas was that you could launch it into the opposing forces' trenches, and the poison gas would settle into the trenches and drive these coughing, mm -hmm. uh, dying soldiers out of the trenches into the open where they could be shot. They started with chlorine gas, and they moved on to phosgene gas, and they were making these more and more poisonous death clouds that would just float over the opposing army. 
Of course, we know the Germans became masterful at gas. They mm-hmm. would then invent um, sarin and tabun gas in World War II, which they used to exterminate millions of Jews. So the German chemists were so far in advance mm-hmm. of the American chemists. I mean, really, American chemistry was at early stages compared to European chemistry. In fact, all the great American chemists studied in Germany under these great gods of chemistry, the German scientists. So they were way, way ahead. And we spent all of World War I playing catch-up. So your grandfather, at the time that World War I ended, was working on this really deadly uh, gas called lewisite, which never, I think, got used because the war ended too you know, quickly for it to get used. And then sort of amazingly, despite, as you say, like, he didn't really like what he was doing. He didn't really want to be making deadly weapons. Again, when World War II came along, he got pulled into the sort of group of scientists and the scientific project to um, make ever deadlier weapons. How did that happen again? It was the crime of experience. Uh, my grandfather was appalled by the weapons work he'd been pulled into in World War One. He turned his back on it. The minute the war was over, he had, you know, dozens of, of very high-paying, lucrative offers to go into industry to continue in the chemical warfare service. He wanted mm. no part of it. Mm. He went back into academics. He, in fact, became president of Harvard University. But he'd had that wartime experience. And so as World War II, you know, swept Europe and the uh, German uh, Nazi troops blitzed their way across one democracy after another, and he saw, you know, free speech and democracies fall to the Wehrmacht, he realized that there was no way America could stand by. He realized we would inevitably have to fight for freedom in Europe. He became such a leading spokesman that, of course, he became very much to um, President Roosevelt's attention. Roosevelt needed all the help he could get. He privately wanted to intervene, but America was isolationist overwhelmingly. And so my grandfather helped guide the interventionist movement and urge America into war. So the minute we found ourselves at war, it made sense, of course, that as a scientist who had developed weapons in World War I, who had all this experience, who had been so prescient in the 1930s about the fact that America would once again need to come to uh, England's aid and defend itself, that he would become appointed as one of the leaders of the Manhattan Project, this huge um, effort to organize um, scientists and technology for war. You know, you've written about a lot of people who were involved in the Manhattan Project, including, of course, Robert Oppenheimer. How do you think that he and, you know, he was surrounded by all these physicists and all these incredibly smart people who've been assembled at Los Alamos to do these tests to figure out could they come up with an atomic bomb? How did they feel about what they were doing? Was it hard to recruit scientists to come uh, to Los Alamos to do these tests and to try to figure it out? Uh, well, that's a complicated question, and, and there's a, sort of a various ways to answer it. The first question is, was it difficult um, to recruit scientists to work on the bomb? Um, not because of moral reservations they had about the bomb, only because they didn't think the bomb would work and they wanted to work on weapons they thought would work. A lot of the top refugee scientists and American scientists were working on radar, a proven weapon hmm. where you could, uh, you know, isolate uh, U-2 boats hmm. under the cover of fog and, and German uh, airplanes uh, by night and shoot them out of the sky and destroy railroads and bridges. Um, radar was the weapon that was winning and would win 
and the European war, and all the refugee scientists wanted to work on radar, not mm. some futuristic right. theoretical bomb that might right. not be done in time. So there weren't moral objections. I mean, okay. people always think, why didn't they have moral objections? Remember, um, American boys were dying in the thousands. People saw this as trying to defeat the worst despot, the worst evil they had ever seen in the form of Hitler. So it was a race against time. And again, uh, when you're in the weapons business, as all scientists were at that point, building proximity fuses and torpedoes, they weren't worried about the moral niceties of the bomb. That would come much later. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jeanette Conan about scientists and their wartime inventions. She's the author, most recently, of Man of the Hour, James B. Conant, Warrior Scientist. Uh, it's in, you describe this moment where they're testing the bomb, which they called Fat Man, right? Yeah. And, like, you've got these incredible scientists sort of cowering because they're, you know, the bomb is going off. They're kind of trying to watch it, but kind of trying to protect their eyes and themselves and so on. And as the bomb goes off and they see sort of different aspects of the explosion, they people are saying, like, oh, wow, that piece of it did work. I never, like, you know, I didn't realize that. You know, you realize this is such a big thing, and yet it is also their little experiment at the same time. Yeah, so they have two or three sides of their brain. There's the technical side of the right. brain that is registering the level of the explosion, right. the height of the mushroom cloud. They're looking at the debris, the fallout, um, the plumes. They're thinking, oh, I feel the aftershock, you know, the blast of warm mm -hmm. air in their face a few seconds later. They're immediately calculating what that means. So they have the technical side of their brain. And then there's the emotional side of them. You know, my grandfather said that when the whole sky turns turned white for a second because of the blinding light. For a split second, he thought that it had all gone wrong and this thermonuclear explosion that Edward Teller had raised the possibility of in a discussion months earlier and that Hans Bethe had ruled out as not likely had happened hmm. and that, in fact, it was going to be the end of the world. So for one second, he felt that blip of terror. So you, you can see the way their minds were racing. Right. Now, interestingly, between this test going well in some ways it worked and before the bomb was dropped on Japan, there were scientists who were not sure that Truman should do it, that he should drop this bomb. People had created this. But then when they saw the potential reality, you know, up until then it was academic and then reality was sort of in front of them, they weren't sure that the president should do it. Yes. And remember, uh, you know, two things, what you just uh, explained exactly, had it been really a theoretical discussion, now it was real. Yeah, now, right. undeniably, there was going to be a weapon ready to use. So suddenly the urgency of the moral issues came back in force. Oh, my God, uh, what have we done? A lot of scientists started asking themselves. But complicating that greatly, exacerbating their anguish was the fact that um, this test, the Trinity test in July 1945, you know, the European war was over. So they had worked all this time to defeat Hitler and undeniable evil. And now General Groves came to Los Alamos and said, don't stop. You are going to continue to work seven days a week because we're going to drop this on Japan. Now, for many of the scientists, particularly the, the, the many, many brilliant um, Jewish refugee scientists who had families in concentration camps, who had lost hundreds of family members, you know, they had built this weapon to stop Hitler. 
they had not the same、um, feeling about Japan. They didn't know what they felt about that.、And、they were suddenly filled with questions, with qualms. You know, is this the right thing to do? They're scientists. They're not military strategists. And suddenly, they started to say, "Wait a minute.、We're, we made this weapon. We want to say." This is our weapon. We created it. We're responsible for how it should be used and controlled. They also right away saw a third、um, issue: that this weapon was so powerful that whoever had it, you know, would essentially rule the world. They knew as scientists that they could not hold the secret. This was a secret of nature, essentially, that had been broken out and examined and exposed to the world, and that that everybody would have this secret cracked in a couple of years, and that other leaders would have the bomb. So that right away they saw that an arms race could develop, that this bomb had to be controlled, and so right away you had scientists, Leo Szilard, all the scientists, University of Chicago laboratories, protesting, writing. Letters to General Groves to the president saying, "Wait a minute, we want to be heard. We want to have a say in whether or not this bomb is ever used or how it's used." And their perhaps naivete was that even though they had created this bomb, they were not going to have a say.、Mm -hmm. The bomb project had been given to the military. It was the military's decision、um, how to use it and when to use it. And as much as they would yell and protest and sign petitions. It was too late. It was out of their hands, and many of the scientists、uh, never, never forgave themselves for their naivete in handing it over to the military early on and not realizing the consequences of that decision. So let's talk about the vision that I know, like Oppenheimer, worried. He kind of foresaw the arms race that you talked about, but maybe even. A world of suitcase bombs, like this world didn't exist, but these people were smart enough and understood the science well enough that they worried that, as you said, that the world was going to enter this new era, this incredibly scary era where maybe you know bombs could be anywhere, and it was hard to know who would control them. I think that's to me one of the, the biggest revelations of the book is when you when you see. What the scientists were warning—Niels Bohr, Robert Oppenheimer—they were fully aware of the danger even before the first bombs were completed. They were warning、um, the political leaders, the president, that these weapons would proliferate, that these weapons could be、um, put in suitcases, they could be transportable. It could fall into the hands of terrorists. All the nightmare、mm -hmm. scenarios that haunted them in '44. In '45,、yeah. yeah. uh, and they started talking about publicly、um, after the war in '46. They foresaw all of the situations that we face today. It's not like we got here by accident, and this nuclear showdown with North Korea was some unanticipated、mm -hmm. scenario that couldn't be helped. Right, right.、Um, are there lessons that you think we should take away? I mean, you, you've been getting out a little bit, but from these military innovators who you've, you know, spent so much time with and thinking about and writing about, that might teach us something about the world today. Well, I think the most immediate、uh, lesson and the most applicable, I think, from my book is that all of these scientists that built the bomb, that had a hand in how it should be used in the bombing of Japan. They would all say, I think, that 
nuclear weapons were so terrible that once demonstrated to the world, once everyone could see how dreadful they were, they should never be used again. I mean, we, we currently have a president who, who sort of speaks glibly of using them again. These are weapons that should never be used again. We should never leave the bargaining table. We should never stop negotiating with an eye to preventing the use of these weapons again. So I would say that's the first lesson um, that an Oppenheimer um, opponent of Bush um, would urge on today's leaders. Jeanette Conant is the author of several books about the intersection of war and science. Her most recent is Man of the Hour, James B. Conant, warrior, scientist. Jeanette, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Here's a footnote to this story that probably is not going to surprise you. After the war, James Conant went to Moscow hoping to convince the world's other major superpower that nuclear weapons could not be allowed to proliferate. Many experts worried that the Soviet Union was going to have the bomb in just 10 or 15 years. But Stalin was not interested in talking. What Conant didn't know was that, according to his granddaughter, Stalin had spies working with Oppenheimer in Los Alamos. In under five years, not the 10 or 15 that the experts predicted, the USSR had developed a nuclear weapon. Once upon a time, about a decade ago, there was a scientist who dreamed of starting a company. And for a while, things went pretty well. He got some cash from a fellow named Bill Gates and from lots of other investors. I knew exactly what, how to pitch it, and I knew what they were looking for. And I probably subconsciously, as I developed the technology, was embodying some of their strategies, I think. The guy is named Jay Whitaker, and the idea for his company went something like this. What if you could create a whole bunch of batteries to store the renewable energy that has become increasingly popular in America? It could probably be very useful to a lot, a lot of folks. And if you could do it using very environmentally benign materials... And if you could do it such that it could be manufactured easily and therefore scaled up quickly, you might really have something. And Whitaker did have something. It was a saltwater battery. Not toxic, not flammable, worked great. And he wanted to manufacture it right here in the U.S., near Pittsburgh, where he's a professor of energy engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. He also believed that his batteries could be optimized to work with solar panels, which have plummeted in price and surged in accessibility over the last several years. So the sun rises in the morning. There's a lot of energy from the solar panel, but it set, the sun sets at night and there's no energy. So you then have to figure out how am I going to use that solar energy all the time. So the battery was actually designed to be charged in six or seven hours and discharged over you know, 12 to 14 hours uh, to sort of complement the, the daily solar cycle. Ten years ago, the possibility that these sorts of batteries might become so widespread seemed a little pie in the sky. But there were clues that it could work. There was a crazy company called Tesla that no one knew much about. <laughs> they were putting a bunch of, of small yeah, they yeah. were putting a bunch of small batteries in a big car and it just seemed like a silly idea at the time. And outside of that, you know, some automotive companies were looking at different solutions, but nothing was there. Uh, 
the the movie Who Killed the Electric Car was sort of recently yeah. out. Um, there was just a very different, very different environment. Whitaker raised hundreds of millions of dollars from some very smart people. The factory in Pennsylvania started up. It was doing well. But things changed. Other kinds of batteries started flooding the market, like lithium-ion ones, which are in your computer and in your cell phone. And Whitaker's company, Aquion, went bankrupt. That, though, is not the end of the story. It turns out Aquion is going to change the national electricity grid. But not America's grid. China's. A Chinese company scooped up Aquion, just like Chinese companies have scooped up a lot of innovative renewable energy companies in America. They're going to take the technology developed here, pump more money into it, use it in China, and potentially sell it to the rest of the world, including maybe us. Which kind of makes you go, what? Why are we allowing this to happen? Jay Whitaker says, our politics swing back and forth. China's never do. When you have a fairly autocratic, uh, you know, government system that can simply decide and execute on things, they can decide and execute on things. Uh And there's been an awful lot of ebb and flow of, you know, the Obama administration was extremely pro-clean technology, was very, you know, adherent to all of the climate science that, that is existent out there. Uh, and the current administration is taking different pathways, mm-hmm. right? And so that ricochet, that whiplash is, you know, it makes locally or United States-wise developing industries difficult, especially around the industry, the energy industry. Whereas in China, they have a very clear path. They recognize that, you know, they have, for a lot of reasons, they want to minimize the amount of fossil fuels that right. they consume. And they're simply just going to do this. I mean, they and they're the choking on smog. I mean, they have they're like the incentive smog, exactly. to do it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really quite visible to them in their right. big cities, right? Uh, and that 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 smog is actually interestingly, well, it's obviously environmentally awful. It is helpful in the policy process because it allows them to really visualize what's happening. Right. Uh, we don't have quite quite the urgency, right? If, I believe if uh, Washington D.C. were was uh, you know covered in, in you know, some horrible smog condition that was directly related to fossil fuels, uh, we may have a different decision process sometimes, right? Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Um, what happens if that budget for um, innovation in, in energy, in new energy, in clean energy, things to address global warming, what if happens if that just gets completely taken out of the budget and, uh, you know, or or just so stripped down that it can't help very many people anymore. Does that mean that technologies do not get developed? Or does that mean that Singapore develops them or England develops them or Germany? De- you know what I mean? Like, does it just get outsourced to somewhere else that whose government says, yeah, we are going to fund this? So that that question is difficult to answer in, in with completeness. For sure, many other you know na- international agencies, other forward-looking countries, are also pouring a lot of money into this kind of thing. And the, there's a theory around innovation and invention called the the theory of cultural maturation, which is uh, good ideas occur simultaneously or nearly simultaneously multiple places around the world. Uh, because similar researchers are exposed to, uh, you know, information that gives them similar ideas. So there's an argument that if, if, you know, we don't do it, yeah, maybe it'll pop up in Singapore or it might pop up in China or Japan or Korea or uh, Germany or wherever. But at the same point, if it doesn't happen here, then we're going to fall behind. Uh, you know, we have in some ways in our R&D and intellectual property basis, we have put enough money in to, to get some foothold and to, to create some momentum, and that will be lost. 
and mm-hmm. then where will we be uh, if if the uh, you know, energy uh, economy and the the fact that energy technology is, is truly important for the growth of economic development of a country in the next century. Uh, if we are flat footed on that, we will be we will fall behind. And so, I think it's more of the United States is at risk of falling behind as opposed to the world is at risk of not having these technologies. Okay. I think we would be very egocentric to think that only the United States and researchers here could invent things that are meaningful. Okay, so the technologies will exist, we just won't own them. We might not own them, and we might not uh, figure out how to use them in an effective way. And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's an awful lot of cultural things that happen when you have a culture of innovation around a particular kind of technology. Um, you know, it's adopted more quickly, um, you know, and there's many of the things that, that come with that quick adoption. You have people then get better at using other things that are similar, and there's a whole innovation sort of thing that happens and if we don't have it here, if it's not something, if we watch other countries do it first, uh, we become a passive bystander and it, it's a slower thing for the United States and mm-hmm. it might be problematic in the long run. I mean, it's hard to say what will happen, but right. this is possible. Are there uh, sort of rays of hope that you see um, when you look around the country and you think about um, – and clean energy startups that are just getting going um, or that are you know, maybe a little more, more mature, does America have some really interesting sort of potential weapons here um, in, the, in the race towards, you know, clean energy? Absolutely. I mean, I think Tesla is a, is a great example. I mean, right. there's an awful lot. Not a of, startup you know, exactly, but you know. No, <laughs> but it, it was. And, and it, sure. it, but no, but, but that's it's super important that they've become, they were a startup, yes. right? Yes, And mm-hmm. they've converted. Uh, you know, and, and you, one of the things that happened, you probably remember the Solyndra uh, debacle. Sure. Solyndra was a solar panel company or solar cell company that took a big loan guarantee and lost it all, mm-hmm. right? They uh, went flat-footed. And it was a huge political issue uh, yep. for the Obama administration yes. and the Department of Energy at the time. At around the same time, you probably don't know, or most people don't know, that Tesla also took a loan guarantee. Huh. Um, and they used it, and they paid it off. They repaid it back early. And hmm. uh, you know, and this was a success. It's a, tr- a true success story. And that loan guarantee program was founded under the auspices of uh, some will fail, some will succeed, right? Not all will succeed. And in, indeed, some did succeed. And Tesla is now becoming a, a major industrial force in the automotive industry. Uh, people really still scratch their heads, I think, sometimes about what the actual future is and what the actual, you know, financials are behind car manufacturing of that sort. But you can't argue with the environment that it's created and the point that if you do uh, play your cards right and you have something that's disruptive and you've got a very strong visionary leader – uh, that you can really make a difference. Hmm. Uh, the other thing that's happened is that whenever one of these small companies uh, downsizes or goes into bankruptcy or closes, they have inherently a number of people inside of them who were uh, trained, smart, understood the technology, uh, understood the issues around whatever the technology was and the market that they were trying to sell into. Many of these people go on to either found or work in other companies that have a much better chance of success because Mm. the people who were doing it have already been through it once. Um, And so I I personally am seeing from the people that we, of course, when we went went into Chapter 11, uh, we let go a a lot of our employees. And many of them now are at other firms and they are doing really well. And uh, this is sort of un... It's very difficult to monetize or to keep track of the value of that, but Mm -hmm. it's a real thing. 
So finally, give me a sense of what you see happening um, with all, like America's energy mix in the next few years. Um, my understanding is about 10% right now of our energy comes from solar and wind combined. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going to happen? Is it going to stay at 10% for a long time? Is that about to shoot up? Where, where are we going? So I believe it's going to go up. Uh, I think a lot of the policies that are actually dictating how many renewables are we, we integrate are state policies as opposed to federal policies. I don't – and the other massive thing here that's happening is the price of uh, natural gas resource is continuing to be low. And in fact, there's a, just even more natural gas, I think, than people anticipated, uh, which means that uh, we'll probably be bringing on fewer – uh, even despite the, the desire by some to, to buttress the coal industry, um, the finances of coal don't don't compete very well with natural gas, hmm. and now not even so well with solar or with wind. Hmm. Now, solar and wind, uh, per their nature, are intermittent, right? right as we've talked right, about, right, so you right. need to figure out how to to co-locate some other resources to make it a continuous power source, but. Uh, I think if you look at what the states want to do and, you know, the very forward-looking states like California and New York and others are pretty aggressive about this. And they're going to continue to install renewable assets at the expense of installing traditional fossil assets. Mm. And so it will continue, I think, to develop. Jay Whitaker is a professor of energy, engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also the director of the Scott Institute for Energy Innovation. Jay, thanks so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. As it happens, Tesla installed the largest lithium ion battery in the world in South Australia last year. It has helped provide a needed safety net for the power system there, which is heavily dependent on wind power. The Tesla installation can step in at a moment's notice on a day when the system is under a lot of stress, a particularly hot day. For example, thanks to the people who helped put together this show associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI Public Radio International.